We would like to acknowledge the Wiradjuri, Ngunnawal, Gundagara, and Biripai peoples of Australia who are the traditional owners and custodians of the lands on which CSU's campuses are located and pay respect to their elders both past and present. Hi, my name is Rachel Walls and I'm a lecturer with the School of Information and Communication Studies here at Charles Sturt University. Together with Associate Professor Zilia Zara-Pat of Saitama University and Dr. Craig Norris of the University of Tasmania, we're going to discuss adapting international immersive education experience to online education platforms. Dr. Norris and I have separately run trips to Japan with students under the DFAT New Colombo Plan Mobility Program, and we've both visited Zillia's university. So this conversation is an intersection of shared contacts and similar experiences among regional universities. Both Dr. Norris and myself have students here in Australia at regional universities, and Saitama University, where Zillia is based, is also considered a regional university. The concept of the DFAT scheme in, in creating people who are able to go into regions and conduct business, I'm not sure if the short trip mobility plan really is able to properly achieve that. I think it's more of an introduction that allows people to decide whether they want to jump further. Yeah, yes, yeah, I certainly agree. Uh, such a short trip is um, certainly not long enough to really allow um, substantial growth if you're looking specifically at the idea of you know a deep nuanced understanding yeah, I think for what it is it's a remarkable experience in terms of you know I I remember running the trips and when anyone would ask about them back in Australia and I'd explain them I, I'd say look this is unbelievable that the government is spending money to allow you know any program to propose a trip like this funding students and and these students that we were taking were were all had part-time jobs all struggled to to make ends meet like any student living away from home is and this was a remarkable experience which would normally be out of bounds for them so I think the experience at that age is so profound for such a short period. And, and certainly when I've, when I've had feedback after many years from students asking them, you know, what they recall from it, I am absolutely amazed at the profound narrative of life changed at that point for them. Tell me a bit about the intentions of your trip. What I'm trying to go for is, is a trip which anyone could take who had no background in Japan, because, you know, I'm not in a language program or a mm -hmm. culture program. Uh, this was mainly journalists studying within the degree I was in at that point. And so I, yeah, I pitched this idea of uh, trying to combine some of the, the social science idea of, of soft power with my own background in, in fan studies. What really interested me was my, although I thought I had a really good handle on what would create interest in the students, right? A kind of pop culture trip fascinated me was that I didn't have otaku come on this trip, right? I think every trip, maybe one at most, was, was you know, a stereotypical otaku that would have a Mario hat on or something and, and perform otaku identity. And the rest were really, really interested to go to sport events, which I had to learn all about. 
Um, and of course, um, Shinto shrines, which yeah. again was my background, but um, was one that um, the students saw as a really great entry point. So after that first trip, I had to come back and really unpack ideas of a different type of Orientalism, um, less the techno-Orientalism, which, which I'd had a background in, and more, actually a more, you know, um, a typical uh, Madame Butterfly Orientalism. So it was wow. really fascinating for me because, you know, I, I, I don't know about your, 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 your entry point into Japan, but, but mine was cyberpunk and William Gibson and techno Orient, right? And, and then I suddenly had this generation, I guess one or two generations younger than me, for whom cyberpunk meant nothing, and um, in, and it seemed, yeah, a, a, a completely different center and periphery experience. Yeah. Well, my entry point was kind of different in that I, I didn't um, go over as a scholar. I went over just as a, as a person. At that time, I didn't have any language skills, really. I guess that what had impressed me the most about that first trip was how different was things and um, how ill-equipped was I to interact with those things. And I thought that there was something about the experience of being all thumbs in that environment that was really, really confronting and transformative for me as a person. That's where Zilli I am. I am also curious about your experience as a person who had to go from being in a novel environment to acclimatize into Japan as a place of your own business and, and practice. I know that you've been there for a very long time, but I'm sure that at first it must have been quite quite a lot to take on board. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, I was I started out in Japan as a Mombusho student, and as you know, um, the Mombusho students are kind of cushioned because they get a monthly allowance. They everybody is supporting them. So the first year I was in Tokyo, and I was with other international students who were studying Japanese full time. But then the following year, I went to a rural area, I went to Fukuoka, and I was the only foreigner, maybe we had like two, and everything was, the language of instruction was Japanese solely. There were no English classes like now they have in almost every college. At that time, everything was just in Japanese. And it was very difficult, even though we were cushioned in the sense of financially, we didn't have to worry about supporting ourselves financially, but culturally it was it was very difficult and i can appreciate that obviously a long-term study arrangement in another country is going to have a much more significant component of culture shock than a short-term visit but i do note that students have an idea before they go to another country about what that country is going to offer them um, and in particularly in the case of Japan, which has that cool Japan agenda of presenting a kind of quasi-westernized, digestible version of itself that just doesn't bear out when people get into the country and have to confront the reality of a very different culture. That students really struggle, and there's a lot of good things about that struggle. There's, there's some really strong writing on the subject of culture shock being a force of change, and that the things that cause a person to question their environment um, become a kind of interrogation that leads to um, internal transformation, that they actually come out of it with 
positive skills that are beneficial to them. And the thing that I think needs to be able to be moved into the online space, I mean, obviously not the culture shock part, but the capacity to recognize and understand that different societies have different sets of norms and different um, customs, different ways of living and doing that are equally valid, and that students can learn from each other. If, if in an online space, you know, we can take the sting out of the shock of the new and the novel environment and simply focus on exploring that through social interactions, through students talking to students and communicating in really simple ways about their own daily quotidian experiences, it could cushion the blow. I mean, in a sense, if it was a pre-departure uh, online activity, it could be that, you know, say students are going to do a unit online with for a few weeks with students from Saitama, and then they get to go to Saitama and meet those people. It means that they're not only feeling a little more comfortable before they leave, but they've been given that comfort by peers that they're going to meet and have that sort of social, um, like a positive expectation rather than a negative one. And I do think that it is something that needs to go into any considered online uh, flipped classroom version of the, of the new Colombo plan mobility trip. And it's impossible to, in a pre-trip preparation where I just put a module together online, it's impossible to sort of say to a student, here's everything you need to know. <laughs> it's never going to happen. But I think when students talk to each other, they have conversations that go off on multiple tangents where it might be more organic, but they talk to each other about their lives and talk about the things that might give them a better sense of a country or a place. I'm wondering, Zilia, if that happens between your students, because I know you've mentioned that the international students tend to stick to themselves. Do they have these conversations with the local students, or is that not a thing? Uh, do you mean like conversations between the international students and the Japanese students about yeah. cultural issues? Yeah. Yeah, that's a very good question, because we have exchange programs, which are obviously reciprocations. So we, this means that the Japanese students also go overseas for half a year or one year, one semester or two. And uh, sometimes they come back with the, this, the sim similar like reverse culture shock, or they had culture shock in Europe or in America. And when they come to my class, they are fairly good in English. So they make friends with the international students. They want to become more international. So they have more discussion and they also talk about their experiences overseas. Like I had a student who was fairly good in English and he said he went to the U.S. and he had a culture shock there because even though he fairly well understood what was happening in class, his English was okay. But beyond that, he wasn't able to make friends. He felt isolated, sometimes even not bullied, but like some racial issues and um, he even developed depression in, in America so it was a big shock for him because he went you know very the very open mind he was very happy to go and so he's more sensitive towards the international students who are in Japan and so they can have more conversations and I I personally think that this whole exchange program in Japan is, is the, the idea behind it is not just to send students back and forth, but for the Japanese students to be exposed to internationals. Because as you know, Japan, especially Saitama, most of our students, the biggest uh, body of students coming into Saitama are regional. So not just Saitama, but up from more north, like Gunma, 
or Tohoku region, very small towns or villages. They never have um, any chance to meet foreigners. Uh, they learn very little English in high school or middle school or elementary. And so it's an extra step for the government to expose them to international students. And um, as you can imagine, the exchange with those students who are more who are not so much used to international students is more limited because there is this great shyness of the Japanese students. They are kind of shy to talk. You have probably seen it in class when we have a half international half Japanese class, we have discussion. The Japanese students have no questions, no comments. They do probably have comments in their minds, but they don't express it. They are worried about public speaking. They are worried about their image. So if they make a mistake in English, they worry they're embarrassed. They think they look silly. So this is a hindrance for communication. But those who come back from overseas or plan to go overseas or even had some studied English on their own, they do do talk with the international students about everything. So I think that's a good, it's a good thing about this program in our school. Yeah, that sounds interesting because I, I think that uh, students, if they can learn about participation gaps and experience them for themselves, I think they're more likely to want to help other people with them because they identify it better. But I also, I, I do know that when I come to Japan and give lectures that students never have questions. And I think they are very worried about not speaking well um, and, and there is that shyness. And I wonder if maybe the next time we're doing a lecture together, if there was one of these, go to this website and post your comment and it's anonymous, whether there would be a greater chance that the students would feel more comfortable to ask their questions and make their observations. Yeah, Rachel, I think you're raising a really key point around pedagogy and education there. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I really enjoyed Paul G's work around affinity space because he he proposed this this question of you know why is it that in schools high schools primary schools there are kids that you know are really clever they're clever out in the basketball court they're clever in their video game but you put them in school in a class doing maths and they seize up they for all outward purposes look like they're not getting it or enjoying it and so he positioned this idea of affinity space, that if you have a look at how video games work in terms of being able to take a kid who, who might struggle in history, but then they, they love this Age of Empires game or something, and they have this ability to have the minutiae. Of, of knowledge around um, you know, history through this game. And he said, you know, what, what is it these, these online spaces are doing, these video games are doing? And he, he breaks it down in terms of talking about portals and generators and says, you know, a game like Mario Brothers works because, you know, the portal, the textbook, right, that we'd use in class has within it a generator, right? It engages students to participate in it. That is, you know, when you've got the little Mario character, your first thing is to jump over this one little gap, but then there's a there's a gap that's twice as long. And, and you realize after failing, you just double click and you jump twice as fast. Very clever, intuitive learning. And the kid kind of, you know, ramps up that knowledge as he's doing it. And so I really like that idea of, you know, affinity space, popular culture interest, if you can position it properly, can be an entry point into a student who's otherwise disenchanted, disengaged 
with the content you're doing will will really hook into it. And you know, I think that uh, you know certainly the NCP trips. I, I I kind of overestimated that idea, if anything. You know, assuming that well, I had an affinity space in pop culture, but it wasn't the right affinity, or at least I changed when I started listening to what the students were talking about as engaging in that space. I think regardless of what the specific affinity space is, is it is it video games, is it Shinto shrines? I think the more critical question is is that method of of saying, you know, what are the portals and generators that the students are describing and engaging with. So Rachel, you mentioned yourself, it was striking to see all of a sudden this portal, uh, a chat site enabling students through the, um, you know, the, the particular technology affordances, technological affordances to do it. And I know there's been research done on the fact that, you know, a lot of students groan about going on to online teaching, yet a lot of research shows for people who have English as a second language, if English is the language being taught in, they love it because the text-based discussion slows everything down, helps those students be able to read, translate more effectively and respond more confidently. So again, one person's kind of, you know, this is a really slow, boring class, is another student's, I'm getting it, I'm enjoying it, I'm interacting. So it is one of those spaces where you kind of throw as much as you can at the wall and see what sticks, knowing that, you know, maybe it's the, the loud voices aren't necessarily the voices which are going to establish what's working or not. There are a lot of students that are going to love just text-based online discussion. And, and I think it's important to, to kind of open up as many of those portals as possible to see them also as, as generators. So I guess what I'd like to do is pivot a little bit. I know that we sort of talked about it might, maybe it would be an idea to have like a short course where students um, create things and send them to one another, like a media correspondence. And I know that say for Craig and I, the students that we teach are learning um, how to use media tools. But for the university you teach at, students are more analyzing media, not necessarily creating it. But what, do, what would you think if there was, say, for instance, a, a four or five week subject where students simply shared their own experience of, of where they are and what, they, what their experience of their world is? I think that's a very, very good and interesting idea and definitely something to, to think about. Uh, what we have to keep in mind is that my school, it's, it's a liberal arts college, which means that all of the students who come here, they come from general high schools. They are not specialized in any field. It's more, more like a humanities course. And at the same time, I also have courses where students from other schools can join. So for example, from engineering, or science. Um, so we have to keep in mind that everybody has very different backgrounds. So I think if we could keep it within the framework of a liberal arts approach, that you don't expect high expertise or very high specialization from the students, but something that you imagine for students from any background can start and just express themselves the way they can. So they feel comfortable. They don't feel too much stress. I, I, I truly believe that it would be a great uh, opportunity. 
I guess one of the things that's challenging in talking about the idea of creating an online space where students can freely exchange ideas, whether it's through media or text chats um, in a normative lecture, the the challenges of the online space in and of themselves are not, it's not about the individual teacher and their capacity to design something to work online. It's the support and resource that's um, required of partner universities, because without having a university partner and engagement with another country, there's no point in one lecturer just setting up an online subject and telling people about a place they can't get to. There needs to be people on the ground in another place to go back and forth with and to create media and to have conversations. Otherwise, there's, there's nothing in it. And I think that there's a need for a discussion about a the, the shift of DFAT in terms of their soft power and soft diplomacy in the expectations that this type of grant shift requires. I'm not sure how I feel about it, and I'm not sure if I'd want to make an application while we are doing virtual work. It's such a, a challenging thing. I mean, there, there are bastions of light. I mean, I think in, in America, the space that I've been mostly inspired by was the MacArthur Foundation, some of the great work they were doing with participatory culture research, looking at models in which you can draw upon ideas like affinity space into teaching cohorts, I found really inspiring. I think there are research-led teaching pathways with the NCP, right? And, uh, you know, looking at models overseas, I'd always thought that, you know, that, that MacArthur Foundation and what they've set up with, you know, youth-oriented participatory culture teaching initiatives was a direction I was hoping to head towards, I guess, with the teaching development grant. You know, here's a similar space, here's a government scheme, here's a whole set of new skills that are required outside of, you know, disciplines that would normally have them, anthropology and so forth. Um, and, and what are the what are the benchmarks that need to be established? Um, you know, and I think you've done a great job finding the Deakin University site. That, seems to be the direction that um, uh, is needed at this point. Yeah, I think that what's interesting about what Deakin University has put out is is that it speaks to the fact that the mobility plan and its aims may not necessarily be getting the results that the aims want, that the way that staff are utilized isn't necessarily intelligent. And the fact is that a lone wolf, like a lecturer who just goes off and takes students overseas, isn't as effective or practical as a university that organizes itself and arranges for that to be part of the normal pattern of things so that it can become pedagogically meaningful and integrated into curricula. But having said that, the NCP also doesn't itself lend itself to a regular inclusion because it is a grant you have to apply for. And because you don't get that money with enough time to plan in advance for for normal programming, you do just have to take it as it comes and go when you're not teaching. And even, you know, it, it's there's there are so many things about the system that don't necessarily uh, provide the, the results that I think people want or need. That just saying you can do it virtually and offering the grant, I am I would be interested to see who applies for that, because um, as I think I've mentioned before, I think that the level of um, resource that you would need to deal with this online is much more significant than just one lecturer and a plane ticket. You know, you'd need technical support and all sorts of things, and also you would really need the good grace and participation of staff members from the other university. Because you can't just virtually take people to another country 
you have to provide experiences that are based in that country. And I think the most valuable experiences are ones they can have with other students in a university like Satama University. And the reality is, is that unless Zillia's supervisors and the, their supervisors and somebody higher up thinks that that's valuable, then, then, it, doesn't even, then it doesn't even matter. Yeah, look, and I think I think you've you've identified before the major value, one of the major value um, markers, which is a lot of the students we have on these trips are those which go on to do honors and and masters and so forth. So, you know, the, the very nature of it, meaning that you're doing more supervision type work, uh, lends itself very strongly to pivoting it to a head of discipline or school with this language of saying, you know, this is one which really set our students apart nationally in terms of then going into honors afterwards it'll give them a a fieldwork vocabulary which will potentially open the world up to them as as leading lights for our institution so that's it for our little conversation i hope that you've enjoyed listening to uh Zilia and Craig and I have a chat about our experiences as people who jump around across borders and like to help our students go through that process themselves as a really fundamental part of coming of age in the modern world. Thank you for listening and joining us, and we appreciate you checking out our podcast.